you guys. How's it going? All right, I'm Scott Horton. It's my uh, questions and answers thing that I'm doing here. Uh, ScottHorton.org slash show for all of these. I'm putting them on the blog at the Libertarian Institute website as well, LibertarianInstitute.org. Um, all right, so I got a bunch of them, so I'm going to try to be brief and not elaborate very well. How do you like that? First of all, I want to say um, thanks to uh, Zachary from the U.S. Air Force and Jason from the U.S. Army, both officers who have resigned. Uh, Zachary's a conscientious objector. Jason got out as fast as he could otherwise. Um, both of them have emailed to give me partial credit for convincing them to do so, so that's kind of nice. I don't usually make it a point of saying, hey, you Army officers, retire! You know, these guys, they decided. So that's nice. Uh, to to hear, to find out. So there you go. All right, so um, let's see. Questions, questions. I got lots of them. Twitter and email, and I may have lost some. If uh, a few of these go by and I never answered your question, then try me again because I might have lost it. I don't really have a good system for keeping track of these things yet. I got to admit, <laughs> I've had more come in than I anticipated right away. Um, first of all, Brian Boatman asks, uh, yeah, well, what's the deal with the CO2 there? And uh, do you think it's a problem? And what do you think should be done about it or something along those lines? So my answer is that, uh, yeah, I'm not so convinced about um, man-made global warming or really any establishment, scientific or what have you, that demands... Uh, what is it that you know people concede to their agreement you know it's not that they actually show me here's how the computer model works and why you should believe in it they just say a lot of us believe in it so you should too and I admit that I haven't done the real work maybe I'd convince myself but it just seems like the whole global warming thing to me seems like a Russia made Trump the president hoax. You know, it just feels like one of those to me. You know, the first, like it's a, a matter of social psychology more than any other thing. You know? If you're on this side, you believe in it. If you're on that side, you don't. That kind of thing. I once asked on Twitter or on uh, Facebook years ago, is there any liberal or leftist who doesn't believe in global warming? Is there any conservative or libertarian who does? And so then the comment section, they all went to war with each other. This was back when Facebook would show your posts to people and stuff, you know. And uh, so there's a huge discussion about it. And there was a little bit of crossover, but very few crossovers. Yeah. I guess my bottom line is, if it's all true, then um, what the world really needs is property rights. And the way to enforce pollution controls is on an individual property rights basis. Somebody's polluting your property where you live, then you have the right to make them stop. And then, well, geez, global warming wouldn't be a problem after all if we had at least every effort made to prevent people from dumping whatever it is out of their smokestack. Hey, it's the 21st century, man. We can figure it out. I don't know. That's my answer is that I don't really know, but even if there's a problem, that doesn't mean we need the government to solve it. I mean, I don't know. 
by all means, propagandize people. Use efforts in the market. We'd be much happier buying your crap if you would put some kind of cap on your smokestack. Put a big cotton filter on the top, man, and get all the gunk out, you know. And by the way, isn't uh, extra carbon dioxide good for vegetation? Especially in this era of clear-cutting and stuff. Seems like maybe we'll get some jumbo trees out of it, no? All right, sorry. So here's uh, let's see. I got some emails here. I'm not uh, I'm not being brief at all. Okay, uh, this guy asks uh, my take on the Lebanese Civil War. I don't know nearly enough about it during the late '70s and '80s. Um, yeah, I don't know if you should really ask me that. I don't really know. Just finished reading up on the Beirut barracks bombing. Um. Any guests I've interviewed at length about the Lebanese Civil War? Let me think about that. Uh, I don't know that I've ever really covered that as its own thing. I've talked about the Israeli occupation in the past there before. I think I've done a show or two about Sabra and Shatila, the massacres there. As far as really breaking down who was who and fighting on which side. You know, I guess the most um, the most common thing that would be mentioned about it is just how Israel's invasion and abuse of the local Shiite population, even though they weren't there for them, they were there for the PLO, uh, how they really created Hezbollah, even though the Shiites originally were like, hey, you want to get rid of the PLO for us? That's okay. But they just really pushed their luck, and that ended up leading to the creation of Hezbollah in response, that kind of thing. Um, and then he says... You mentioned multiple times that the suicide bombing that killed the Marines was executed by the Amal militia, not by Hezbollah, as everybody else says. Does the distinction really matter? Both seem to be backed by the IRGC. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, kind of does matter. It depends on what the accusation is, right? Um, you know, I think, like back when they're warmongering against Iran... Uh, I think I remember Pat Buchanan, who is not an anti-Iran hawk at all. He's totally sound on Iran, but I believe it was him, I think, who I learned this from. And he was conceding that, or maybe he was debunking some some warmongering about Hezbollah and said, well, it was the Amal militia that really did that attack. Um, but then, of course, that could have been spun the other way because the Amal militia was even closer to Iran and was even, you know, more loyal to following their orders. They really did because the Iranians told them to do it even. Uh, I believe was the way that he had phrased it. So, it's, um, in other words, it's good spin for Hezbollah and bad spin for Iran, whichever side you prefer there as far as confirmation bias goes and that kind of thing. I don't really know. I only know it from... Uh, what I heard from Pat and what I guess other guests have said, yeah, that's right on this show. I can't say I could name them off the top of my head who I've discussed that with on the show, but apparently you might remember since you've heard me say it a few times. Um, and then as he says Weinberger seemed to be the one guy who did not think that the evidence pointed to Hezbollah. He is the Secretary of Defense. My thoughts on Weinberger, not many. I don't really know very much about him. Um, oh, and then he says that there's a book, but I don't know anything about the guy's book. So there's that. Sorry, dude. Uh, it sounds like a good one. I should read it someday. 
Okay, then somebody says, why is the U.S. allied with Saudi in the first place? You know, you're going to hear this interview I did with this CIA analyst lady. And I guess it was after the interview, but I think it's okay to say that. She kind of wondered, too, what is it about Saudi? Um, I think that's okay for me to say, right? Um, and the thing is, it's not just the oil. It's that they buy government debt. They buy U.S. government debt, and they buy American arms. In fact, that's what I should have said to her. I said the government debt part, but I forgot the part about the billions recycled into Lockheed pockets. And then Lockheed spends at least some of that money helping congressmen get reelected, and so there you go. Um, so that's a big part of it, is they take the money that we spend there and they give it back to us. Just like in the movie Network, where the guy's protesting against the Arabs buying property in America. And then uh, good old what's-his-name that plays Lex Luthor's assistant in Superman 2, or in Superman 1, gives him the big speech. You're messing with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. Wait, I got it, dude. And you know what? While I'm trying to pull this up, um, uh, let's see. Oh, I don't know if this is the good quality ones or not. But I will tell you that this speech from Network actually comes from a passage in Greg Pallast's first book that he wrote when he was like 21 years old. Stop it! Now you listen to me and listen carefully because this is your goddamn life I'm talking about today. Oh, this, this is the wrong one. So this is just him company. saying stop the Arabs. That isn't it. It's the one where the guy's giving him the facts of life. About we put that currency in Arabia and now they have to put it back. Remember that? This is kind of the thing where they were going to buy up all those port companies and everybody freaked out. It's like they're trying to put their our money back. That's how it's supposed to work. We're the empire. They're the satellite. Anyway, so that's a big part of that. Um, and then what ex to what extent were they involved in 9-11? How does that tie in with the blowback theory Ron Paul champions? Okay, so... Um, I think the real tie with September 11th is that Saudi royals, including Prince Turkey and Prince Bandar, helped finance Al-Qaeda with protection money. Back to Greg Pallast, actually. Uh, he was the guy who really reported, I think, first, maybe not, about this big meeting at a French hotel in 1996 where Prince Turkey had handed these guys millions of dollars and said, just don't attack Saudi. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a problematic problem. And then so, uh, as Palace reported in November 2001, FBI agents came crying to him, said they had been told to back off the Saudis, not because George Bush wanted September 11th to happen, but because the Saudis had all kinds of embarrassing relationships with terrorist financing in America and uh, Republican oil men in Houston. And that if... The FBI agents followed all the money to the people who paid it. They would also find that those very same people were in prominent business relationships with the people who were coming into power, George Bush and his men. And so, and I guess probably, I forget now, the Enron guys. Anyway, a lot of money down there. So, um, that's really the deal. Now, if you want to read about the 28 pages, I think... There may be others I don't know about. Certainly, as far as I know about, my wife, Larissa Alexandrovna Horton, wrote the best 
summary of the 28 pages, and you can read that at antiwar.com. Um, just search Larissa Horton. It's easier than trying to spell her patronymic there. Um, and if you read that, you know, you could spin it either way. Like, you know what? It kind of looks bad, but really, yeah, not so sure. Or you could look at it like, yeah, the uh, hijackers were being handled, at least for a time, including the financing of their flight school training by Saudi intelligence officers. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I mean, I guess Occam's razor would be that, yeah, Dick Cheney hired Prince Bandar to do a big attack, if you wanted to look at it that way. I guess that wouldn't really be Occam's razor. That would be a razor. Another razor would be that, yeah, they were new in town, and Saudi Embassy gave them some money, and even a minder. So what? Uh, depends on how you read it, I think. I mean, the article ends with a bunch of questions, not a bunch of crazy assertions, so you make of it what you will. All right, so there's that one. And then this one is... Uh, I think I heard you mention that the Pakistani government had Osama bin Laden and could have given him to the U.S. after 9-11. Is this true? Yes. And Seymour Hersh is reporting for the New York uh, Review of Books. And the reason that I know it's true... Well, I don't know at what point the Pakistanis got their hands on him. I'd have to go back. In fact, Seymour Hersh wrote a small book about this called The Killing of Osama bin Laden um, that I'm sure is worth looking at. Uh, I only I did interview him about the article he wrote, if you want to go back and listen to that. And, I don't know, I guess I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I don't care, man. My wife had a huge chunk of that story then, but Stupid Raw Story didn't publish it. So, Hirsch's article had many more angles to it. But my wife's article that she wrote back in 2011, in the months after the attack, um had it that the Saudis were paying the Pakistanis to keep them there. That was one of the things in it. As well as, of course, that they had permission to raid the place and that General Kiani was in on it. Uh, otherwise, there could have been a firefight, man. Um, and anyway, there there's some other things in there, but she had that story before Hirsch. In fact, there was some other lady blogger uh, who maybe a year later came out with something along those lines. And then Hirsch had it in the New York Review of Books. In fact, there was even a thing in the New York Times where, you know, everyone was supposed to pile on Hirsch and say, oh, no, Hirsch is a kook now and we don't like him anymore and this kind of crap. And there was a thing in the New York Times said, you know, I don't know, man. He seems to kind of some of these things do line up. And then people got mad at that guy. You're not supposed to like Seymour Hirsch anymore. He's a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, sure he is. Look where the guy was living. He was living in Abbottabad right down the street from their West Point Military Academy. I'm pretty sure they don't call it West Point. But it was their elite military academy or naval or army or maybe all of them or whatever. I forget. Uh, military academy right down the street. So, yeah, it seems like he was being kept safe. Um, and then uh, my broader question is what is the minimum that the U.S. government could have done to capture the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. Why didn't the U.S. government take those actions instead of the overreaching interventions they've been doing? Yes. Well, that is a good question, and uh, you're going to have to wait for my book. No, I'll go ahead and ruin it for you. Um, they could have negotiated, and the Taliban would have given up bin Laden and Zawahiri if Bush had been willing to negotiate with them. And they had real offers, not pretend 
you know, um, you know, long con offers or whatever, drag you along offers, but real offers to negotiate. And Bush refused to negotiate. Now, assuming they still had to do the war at all, it would seem the obvious thing would be above all to find the Arabs. Whether, you know, Bin Laden's few real Al-Qaeda friends, just a couple of hundred of those, or even the Arab fighters fighting with the Taliban, who, you know, may or may not be Osama's friends, you would think, I'm not saying what I would do, I'm just saying from what George Bush woulda, coulda, shoulda done, assuming the war at all, you might have expected him to target the Arabs as fast as possible. Instead... And for that matter, send in the Airborne and send in the Rangers as fast as you can. Send in the Marines as fast as you can. Get a presence on the ground. Find the Arabs and chase them and don't let them get away. But instead what they did was they just decided on a policy. Well, we're just taking the side of the Northern Alliance and their civil war against the Taliban now. So here, let's fight for weeks at Mazari Sharif. And let's fight and screw around all over here in the north. And we really would like a land bridge to Uzbekistan to open up here. So we want to take them out, you know, way over here and over there. But meanwhile, Osama's getting away. And then the CIA ended up finding out, hey, they're at Tora Bora, which is where Bin Laden's so-called lion den camp was anyway. So they said, hey, these guys are at Tora Bora. We can get them now. So they went. And they literally had, at least at first, a handful, I think, Five or so. Maybe it was a few more than that. Delta Force operators and CIA special operations group guys. And they were pointing laser pointers. They climbed up high in the mountains were pointing laser pointers down at the Al-Qaeda guys. And had them pinned. And had the Air Force just bombing the crap out of them. So there were about, I don't know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 there. I'm thinking on the lower end of that. Were there at Tora Bora. And... Um, then only there were only a couple of hundred who escaped, um, about 135 of whom supposedly were killed in Pakistan, and then another hundred and something escaped with Bin Laden, and then that was it. And the deal was that the local commanders there, and this is in the book Jawbreaker, I've been trying to get this guy on the show. It's not working. But if you read the book Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson, um, he, and I believe him, he says that he was screaming and crying and begging for rangers, which, you know, Green Berets, there's, they're not like the Delta Force, which is like smaller guys, but the Green Berets are still special forces, right? They're the, they're the sending the Green Berets, you know. So you would think that's what they would have done. And in fact, the Green Berets already held the Bagram Air Base. There were a few thousand of them, I forget now exactly how many thousand of them were there, that held the Bagram Air Base. And our current Secretary of Defense, General James Mattis, the Marine Corps General, he had 10,000 Marines. I forgot the name of the place where they were stationed, but not too far away. And uh, there's an article in the New York Times called Lost at Tora Bora, where Mattis had begged General Franks, Hey, I got 10,000 Marines. And I'm, he was, what, I don't know, 30 or 50 or 10 miles away or whatever the hell he was. He could see the, the mountains from <laughs> wherever he was. 
May I please go? And they said no. New York Times says the general was turned down. So they had something like 10,000 Marines and I believe 4,000 Rangers, and they absolutely could have sealed the border at the area right there adjacent to Tora Bora and probably even, you know, up to Jalalabad. And then and they could have stopped the escape. But Franks wouldn't do it. And in fact, in Jawbreaker, oh, in in the One Percent Doctrine by Ron Suskin, they have Jawbreaker Gary Bernson's boss, um, uh, Hank uh, Henry. Uh, I want to say Crenshaw. That's not it. Something like that. Henry uh, Crumpton. Henry Crumpton. He goes and briefs Bush and Cheney in the Oval Office, and shows them a map. And goes, here's where they are, here's where the border is, here's where we got some rangers. We really, really, really want some reinforcements here, boss, please. But then, no. And it sucks, because in that book, the chapter just ends right there, or that section just ends. Well, what happened? They told him, we'll think about it, or what? And so, you know, Tommy Franks always gets the rap. But it's Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Bush are the bosses of this thing. And at that point, see, you could imagine that, well, they didn't know, and Tommy Franks is dumbass, and they made a bad decision. But at this point, where you have Crumpton laying out the map on the table and saying, we got him cornered in one square mile, but all we got is four guys with laser pointers and planes. But what we need is men on the ground with rifles to keep them from escaping. And their only excuse is, well, but if we'd invaded with tens of thousands of men, then that would have meant a whole nation-building effort and an occupation and all these terrible things that we don't want. Well, but that's what they did anyway. And that doesn't even make any sense. You could send in 100,000 Marines and then pull them out in three weeks. Just kill Osama. And then later, you know, um, this is in you know mid-December 2001, and in that spring... Ayman al-Zawahiri put out a podcast where he's mocking the Americans and saying they had us cornered at one square mile or one square kilometer of space here, but they were too afraid to engage us. And of course, you know, there's special operations guys, Delta Force guys who later came out and said, oh man, we were raring to go. And in fact, Delta later got reinforced. That was the thing. They got another 40 guys that came in. You know something else that's interesting about this? I'm ruining my own whole book for you here, but this guy Gary Bernson, jawbreaker, he was called out of there. He was running the CIA effort there and was working with the Special Operations Command guys on. And they pulled him out of there in the middle of the battle for Tora Bora and replaced him with, I think, Rich Blee, who might sound familiar to some of you guys from the Rich Blee podcast and the 9-11 was all his fault in the damn first place story. So, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, it is a government program. National security. What do you expect? High quality service for a low price? Right. Okay, uh, now let's see. Um, Why are libertarians silent on Russia? Somebody asked on Twitter. I don't think we are. I mean, even Ramondo is still good on that. Uh, I don't know of any libertarians who are bad on Russia. I know, you know, Hornberger at the Future Freedom Foundation, he don't believe no Cold War hype. The Mises guys 
I don't know if they make too much noise about it, but they're solid. Ron Paul and Dan McAdams are 100% solid on American-Russia issues. Uh, Doug Bandow is great. Um, trying to think of anybody at the Future Freedom Foundation, um, um, pardon me, at the um, Independent Institute has taken up this cudgel. But hell, show me a libertarian who's bad on Russia, man. I think libertarians are doing great work. You know, it's funny, somebody on Twitter the other day, I got into a fight with some idiot about something stupid, and then some friend of his jumped in and goes, yeah, this guy, Scott Horton, is always, you know, on the Russia bandwagon accusing them of whatever it was I was supposed to be accusing them of, I forget. Rigging the election for Trump or something. So, yeah, boy, you don't pay attention very good, dude, because actually I think I might be the single greatest debunker of all of that in the world other than maybe Bob Perry. But even then, I mention every Bob Perry article, and I run them all at antiwar.com. So how do you like that? I run every good article debunking Russia crap on antiwar.com. But I guess, right, if you decide that you don't like me, you'll find a reason, even if that reason is that I'm always falsely accusing Russia of stuff. Okay. You know what? I don't really like me either, man. That's all right. Okay. Uh, one world government. Stephen Hawking says we need a world government. Yeah, I think we need a global disarmament treaty on the H-bombs. That's for sure. Uh, but a one world monopoly state? I mean, what kind of bloodbath? And how does that make sense at all? You think a one world parliament is going to represent... I mean, would you even have a parliament and just be Sky Marshall, whoever, the fascist, right? Um, but even then... That they would listen to you at all? That you would have any power at all? In a system so far away as a world state? Yeah, no, I don't think so. You must have a false premise baked into your equation there somewhere. Genius. And seriously, I got people, I was saying, What an idiot! This guy, Hawkins, is a total stupid ass! For saying we should have a world government. And I really got tweets from people saying, No, uh, he is not stupid. You're stupid. He's good at math. He's a genius and won awards and stuff from people for being really smart about stuff. What are you good at? Having a, being a libertarian? <laughs> you know what? You're right. I am not nearly as accomplished of a scientist as Stephen Hawking. Uh, but he's still a dumbass for wanting a world state. Sorry. I'm very, very sorry about y'all's feelings, but that's pretty much the way I see it. Okay. Then someone asked, who was it that was on your show saying you were dead wrong about Russia and Hillary? And um, I can't remember the guy's name, but it started with, it was Daniel something, I think, and he was Bill Moyer's guy. He was like a former left-wing anti-Vietnam War activist. But then it was one of those, like, oi, avert your eyes. He just turned into a Democrat of some kind. You know, he just wrote something earlier. I just saw Daniel, whatever it is, talking about how Obama had a scandal-free presidency. Yeah, as long as you don't count any of his eight foreign wars. All of which were wonderful and cheap and effective. I guess, apparently. Um, and then someone asked about the EarMEP lawsuit. The answer is mixed, and I'm going to have Grant Smith on the show uh, either Wednesday or Friday 
to talk about this. A judge dismissed the case, but as Grant put it, she did a really bad job of dismissing it and seized on totally inappropriate grounds to dismiss it. And as he put it, this thing was going to appeals court anyway. Oh, this is Grant Smith's lawsuit against American aid to Israel since they are a nuclear weapons state, and that's against the law for America to give foreign aid to an undeclared nuclear weapons state. So, he's suing, but the judge threw it out on very flimsy uh, reasons. And so, he's laughing and saying, great, we're going to appeal. It was going to be appealed anyway, either way. And so, but now, we're going to really have a good time winning the next round. So, we'll see what happens with that. You can read all about that at earmep.org. And I want to mention again, in fact, let me talk, let me Google it here so I get it right. Um, uh, Grant Smith is doing his Israel conference again, the Israel lobby and American policy. It's uh, John Mearsheimer, Jack Shaheen, Jim Moran, Elon Pap, Papa, Papa, how do you say it? Tom Hayes, Clayton Swisher, Khalil Johnshan, a bunch of others. Conference, the Israel Lobby and American Policy. That's March 24th at the National Press Club in D.C. So I do hope you guys will go and uh, learn a bunch of stuff and support Grant Smith's efforts there. All right. Um, and um, uh, let me see. I answered that one. I answered that one. And then that's it. I think that's it. If I missed you, uh, if you're hearing this and you haven't heard me answer your question yet, then... Uh, try me again. Send me a tweet at Scott Horton Show or email me scott at scotthorton.org. And in fact, <laughs> one last thing. Um, if you go to my website, scotthorton.org, uh, you can click on the link there that says sponsors in the upper right hand side. You know what? I bet. How's that Amazon link doing? I need to talk with my web guy about that. Anyway, um, I do have somewhere on the site, if you look around for it, it's on the support page, I guess. There's a link, I hope. So you can uh, shop Amazon.com and I get a kickback. I really appreciate those of you who do that. It really helps. Um, and then, uh, so there's Wall Street Window, Investment Advice, and the War State Book, uh, both by Mike Swanson. There's LibertyStickers.com and the BumperSticker.com. That's Rick McGinnis. Uh, runs a great business over there. I invented it, but I could have never made the thing last for 15 years like this. Uh, he's done a great job with Liberty Stickers and the BumperSticker.com. Liberty Stickers is my hateful slogans. The Bumper Sticker, that's uh, stickers for your band or your business. Robertson Roberts Brokerage. They will help you to buy metals at very competitive prices. I said it wrong the other day. It's rrbi.co, not .com rrbi.co and you can just remember rrbi that's like a run batted in that's pretty pretty easy to remember for those of you with dads you know rrbi.co um and then Darren's Coffee Company uh Liberty Classroom Tom Woods Liberty Classroom I get a great kickback if you uh, link through from my site and sign up for that and um also help support over at Go Kart Galaxy if you and your kids like riding mini bikes and go karts, uh, check out all the great stuff there. And anybody else who wants to help support this show, uh, just stop by scotthorton.org/donate and/or libertarianinstitute.org/support if you want to do that too. 
especially if you're really, really rich, we would like it if you would give us a lot of money. You should consider that. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, so that's questions and answers for the 13th of March, 2017. Thanks very much, guys.